This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Obviously, this course will go from the Reformation period uh, up through early 20th century. Uh, so, that's, that's the general course we plan. It's, it's a survey course, and what that means for me is I don't get to get into some things as, as deeply as I would like, in particular, that my best shot. I'll give more time to that probably than uh, who comes to some of the other things. Uh, and I do believe that, that any student who, who comes from this institution needs to have a fairly solid grounding in the Reformation. So uh, I will spend probably a disproportionate amount of time there. But I do intend to, to press on and try to cover as much as I can up through the 20th century, early 20th century. Uh, as always, you will see that I want to emphasize primary sources. Uh, that's why I've had you read not only Luther and Calvin, but Schleiermacher for example. Now, I'm not asking you to agree with Schleiermacher, but I do want you to read him to get a sense. Schleiermacher was a very crucial figure, and uh, one needs to have some sense of, of where he was uh, coming from, seems to me. And then, of course, we've also got Machen, uh, who I think is one of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century. Uh, and who uh, fought against some of the ideas of people like Schleiermacher. Okay, course requirement. Papers. Um, I've got a list of, of topics on the second page. When they photocopied this, they did it sort of funny, but anyway. Uh, I've got a fairly extensive list here of topics. Some of them are, uh, well, you'll notice that I do a lot of compare one with another. I've done that for a couple of reasons. One is that I think those tend to be easier papers to write when you look at somebody on a particular theological idea and you compare him with somebody else on a particular theological idea. I think that, has a, that, ha that helps you focus in. And I'm hoping that you will write better papers as a result. So, and the other reason is that this also forces you to read two major theologians instead of just one. Uh, what I'm looking for, what I'm hoping for, is that in addition to the required reading, you will read somewhere three, five, six hundred pages on your own as you prepare the paper. Now, I'm not going to put any definite limits on that. But, but I would encourage you to read in the primary sources. Uh, one of the things that I will be looking for in the papers will be to make sure that you quote extensively or 
evidence that you have read carefully primary source material, whether it's Schleiermacher, Machen, Wesley, uh, the Council of Trent, whatever. I want to be able to see that you have read the real thing, the primary stuff. And one of the other things that uh, I want to stress, and I, I find that this is a, a kind of characteristic of a conservative theological institution. And that is we have a tendency when we write a paper to get on a, our high horse and think we've got it all figured out and we treat other perspectives without due respect. One of the things I look for in a paper is that when you consider opposing viewpoints, and I would like to see that in your papers, that you treat that opposing viewpoint with respect. Uh, I'm not very interested in people who write papers and simply dismiss other, other perspectives without a, a fair hearing. Now, that's not saying you can't criticize other traditions or even our tradition of the Reformed tradition. I will not shy away in the least from someone who criticizes the Reformed tradition. It needs criticism, just like I need criticism and you need criticism. So let's make sure that you do try to look at other perspectives, whether it's an academic viewpoint with which you disagree or a theological tradition with which you disagree, make sure that you are balanced and fair in your treatment. I, 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 again, I, I've seen too many papers where somebody just mentions the charismatics, for example, and just kind of dismisses that movement out of hand. That's not fair. It's not honest. It's not right. So if we want to be good thinkers... And, and I would even add, good Christians, we ought to be fair to other traditions or academic perspectives with which we might find ourselves in disagreement. That even means Schleiermacher. And I'm no friend of Schleiermacher, I assure you. But I do want to treat him fairly and try to appreciate what kinds of issues he's trying to get at in his writings, what he's reacting against. Try to understand his context. Uh, that's what you want to do uh, in your papers. Uh, I've listed a, a whole range of things here. Uh, things as sort of traditional as uh, Luther and Erasmus on free will. Uh, Calvin's view of the illumination of the Holy Spirit and compare that with Schleiermacher on religious subjectivism. I think that might be an interesting sort of paper if you're inclined that way. Uh, to touch on uh, the question of, and this is sort of one that, that has raged for the last, oh, ten years or so in Reformation studies, the question of Calvin versus Calvinism. If that's a kind of issue that rings your chimes, then you might want to look at the third one here, Turretin, who about a hundred years later was the professor of theology at Geneva, and compare him, a Calvinist, with Calvin 
on a crucial issue that is particularly characteristic of Calvin, namely predestination or election. Uh, that would be a good topic for someone who wanted to look at that question of Calvin versus Calvinism. And uh, I can give you direction on a lot of these. A good one I think that's kind of an interesting topic is Edwards and some modern charismatic uh, theologian, and there are a few out there, on the question of religious affections. Kind of interesting stuff, don't you think? Uh, good topic. What do, you, what do you mean by religious affections? Uh, the role of emotions, uh, that kind of thing. We're going to talk about Edwards in this class a little bit. Uh, I mean, Edwards saw some very interesting things during the, during the Great Awakening. Uh, people uh, crying uncontrollably, exhibiting very emotional behavior. Something you don't see in Presbyterian churches, usually. Uh, and, you know, compare that. I mean, here we have, you know, in American... Christianity, we have, I mean, Edwards is sort of Mr. Mr. Calvinist. Uh, and to compare him and his view of religious affections and some of the more modern charismatic uh, churches and ideas, it might be an interesting uh, study for some folk. Traditional stuff, Luther and Edwards on justification, Luther and Edwards on free will. Uh, another very interesting one, and one that, that I kind of... Uh, I kind of like, and, and that is Whitfield and Wesley on grace and predestination. That was one of the that was the issue that forced a breach in their relationship. Uh, and this is one of those where I would really want to see fair treatment and balance. Uh, I think I know my tendency would be to say Whitfield was right, Wesley was wrong, just without doing much thinking or research at all. And one of the questions I'd like to see people address is, did Whitfield do anything that might have contributed to the breach? Uh, or was Wesley entirely wrong? I mean, this may very well be one of those situations where you reach the conclusion that Wesley was pretty rotten in this, in this breach of a relationship and friendship, that he was unreasonable. Uh, get you get you into the idea of personal relationships of two very significant persons, as well as theology. So it's that the kind of paper that one would be. Uh, if you're interested in things like the doctrine of Scripture, if you're really focused on, if you want to do some more theological kind of oriented work, look at Warfield and Bart on Scripture. I mean, that's that would be a very interesting one. Uh, yeah. Um. In doing these papers, do you want us to focus more on, I mean, my question is, do you want us to focus more on just the, the, the ideas between the two that you're preparing? Yeah. Not necessarily, Edwards was born on 19th Yeah, I, I get tired of, I can look up in a dictionary for, for that kind of information if, if I don't know. So, uh, so if that's not in there, that's okay. Yeah, that's that's not terribly important. I am much, with in 12 pages, uh, now you can write a good paper in 12 pages. That, that, that has been done before. Uh, one that, that interacts with, in a significant way, the ideas of individuals. I think that's entirely what. So I am, yes. I'm, 
I see this as a class that's primarily historical theology. Uh, you know, my, my attitude about church history is it's not just a waltz through history to look at some of the fun things that happened. But for me, and I think most of you have heard me talk about this, for me, church history is a wonderful opportunity to sit at the feet of some of the most godly and wisest men and women of history that God has given the church. We can learn, we can grow spiritually as a result of reading some of these great people that God has given the church. So for me, church history is not just a waltz down memory lane. I think most of you know that about me already. But, but I think this is great stuff. It's the stuff of edification for you and for me. Uh, so, you know, I, I do want you to interact with the ideas. That's what, that's what really rings my chimes. And I think that is what will really benefit you spiritually. It's not enough for me that you simply write a good paper. I want you to grow as a Christian. And I, and I hope that you will choose a topic that will encourage that. Uh, another one here is the Oxford Movement. Uh, this, is, this is interesting stuff. I mean, one of the things that we don't do very well in our circles is, is look at other traditions. And the Oxford <laughs> Movement was one that it goes back to, to Anglicanism or to the Episcopalians. And we have some folk in our institution here who, who do have that background a little bit. So this would be a great opportunity to look at John Henry Newman and Keeble and Pusey, some of the, the founders of the Oxford Movement. One interesting stuff. And for those of you who are more contemporary, we can look at compare liberation theology and feminist theology. Uh, I am not at all adverse for someone taking this on, whether you be male or female. Uh, the only thing I ask, you be fair with uh, the concerns that both feminists and liberation theologians have. You, 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 can, you, can, you can go at them really hard if you want. I'm, I, I'm not, again, not adverse to strong criticism. But I want, you to, I want to be fair criticism. Uh, one of my favorites is number 10. Uh, <laughs> Frederick Nietzsche and Billy Graham. Uh, for some enterprising person, they, they might want to uh, take that on. Uh, Thus spoke <laughs> Dr. James. Anyway, uh, number 11, Machen Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard, in particular, is uh, a, a terribly intriguing chap. Uh, bizarre, strange, but interesting. Uh, if, you're, if you're one of those kinds of persons... Who, who is intrigued by, by, by sort, sort of philosophical uh, theology, uh, Kierkegaard and Machen would be a very interesting sort of combination. Uh, and and I, think, I think it's worth... Uh, I, I debated, in fact, as to whether to include Kierkegaard. Uh, some of his writings 
in this class. Uh, perhaps in the future I will include Kierkegaard. But I think he is a, a person who has had a tremendous influence in a whole range of theological traditions uh, in our modern world today and is therefore worth knowing something about. Uh, where am I? Trent. Uh, this is sort of a little bit of a jump back, but... but uh, one of the things I think is important for us to do is to know about Catholicism. Uh, and looking at Trent and Vatican II would be a way of doing a very interesting study to compare the mentality of Trent toward Protestantism and Vatican II. What kinds of changes have occurred there in three or four centuries? Uh, that would be a very interesting study. Uh, if you did this, did that paper on something like that for uh, Sproul's class, you can't redo it for this one. So, uh, where are we? Uh, Fourteen. Pannenberg and Burkauer. Pannenberg is probably one of the most influential uh, theological stars today. Uh, an intriguing. Uh, theologian. If you're interested in look, being more contemporary and looking at a modern theologian, read Pannenberg. Uh, John Owen is always good. A little rough going for some folk, uh, detailed, but uh, John Owen is worthy of, of struggle and study. Again, something a little more contemporary, church growth movement. This is, a, this is an idea that has uh, taken evangelicalism by storm in the last 15 or so years. And uh, I would be really pleased if someone were to take that on, uh, to look at the basic ideas. Uh, I'd be interested to see what you observe to be the theological presuppositions that govern a movement of that sort. What are the goals and aims? And how does one achieve those? So you might want to question or look at presuppositions, methodology, goals. Uh, that's a, an interesting one. Are you referring to specifically uh, 20th century American church growth? Yes, I am. And one that you might want to compare. This is one that I'm interested in as well. Number 17, the last one. Uh, one of the, the mistakes that some... Uh, American evangelicals make, I made it, is that American evangelicals are almost the same as British evangelicals. We hear John Stott and J.I. Packer and Alistair McGrath, and we always assume that they are exactly with us on every single issue with American evangelicals. Well, that may or may not be true. Uh, it is interesting in my, my experience uh, a little, a little difficult at first for me when I went back when I studied at Oxford is to discover that I would use language and I talk about things to my British evangelical friends and they kind of look funny at me. You, you know, do you really believe that? Uh, things kind of like inerrancy. I mean, inerrancy—that's not part of, of of a British evangelical's vocabulary. It's, it's a non-issue. Nobody knows anything about it. And they don't care to know about it, generally speaking. So there are some interesting kinds of differences between us and them. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are fighting a, a difficult battle. 
to be sure, but they've drawn the battle lines in different places than we have. And it would be an interesting sort of almost a sociological study, sociological, theological study, to sort of compare uh, one or more of the British evangelicals with some of the mainstream ideas of American evangelicals. And that's, a, that's, a, that's a broad topic. And one of the things I need to always say that, that when I've suggested these topics is that you need to narrow them down. Okay? Even though I've suggested uh, a topic here, please feel free to take the general topic and then bring it down to a, to a much more manageable focus. I mean, there are various issues, for example, in predestination. If you were to compare uh, Wesley and, and Whitfield on that question, you don't have to cover the entire doctrine of predestination. I mean, that's, that's, that's mammoth in terms of, of understanding that properly. But you might want to focus on one narrow question in that general doctrine of grace or predestination and then compare the two on that very narrow topic. So one of the things you need to do when you select one of these topics is to do some preliminary reading and pretty early decide how you're going to narrow your paper. Okay? So you please feel free to do that. Uh, one of the problems that I run into very often is I get papers that are very, very broad. Again, basically dictionary articles. And, and I really want you to do more than that. I think, I think you will grow you will do better if you, if you get into something a little more specific, a little more narrow uh, in your papers. Did, did you have a question? Okay. Well, anyway, I think these are good, a good selection of topics. Uh, and as I say here, if there's something, some topic or person or issue that you're just burning uh, to write about, uh, come talk to me and ordinarily we could work something out. I want to encourage good writing. And, and, I, and I don't do it, just do it just because I think it's a nice thing to do. For me, good writing is good thinking. And I want you to be good thinkers as you come out of here. Because you're going to face a tough world as pastors or missionaries or moms and dads, uh, except some who may not have children. Um, it is a tough world out there, and there are lots and lots of challenges. And those people who think well theologically will do better. They'll be better equipped to live in this, in this world. And I can't think of a more difficult, a more complicated job than being a pastor. That's, that's hard. That's really hard work. And you need to be well equipped spiritually and academically, intellectually with the right kinds of tools to live in this world and to give advice to people who are hurting, who are struggling with, with questions like AIDS or uh, whatever. We do need to be able to help those people. And I think good thinkers, whether you get that from this class or other classes, will you be able to minister to them in, in better and deeper ways. And that, that is, after all, the ultimate goal here is to help you, to help equip you so that you can equip the people uh, better. Structure of papers. Let me just say a word about that. I'll, I'll get to your question here in just a moment. 
Uh, I'm, as you know, a little bit on the formal side when it comes to papers. I like a table of contents. I like an introduction. I like a body in the paper. I like a conclusion to sum everything up. I like footnotes. And I don't care whether you put them at the end of the paper or at the bottom of the page. I just want to see them. And I want a bibliography. Uh, you may or may not know this, but a bibliography tells me an awful lot. So, uh, I'd like you to put together a, a good bibliography for, for your uh, papers. And it's always helpful to me that if you would put a little asterisk by those texts that you have employed extensively in the course of writing your paper. The bibliography can be broader than. In fact, I want to insist that your bibliography be broader than uh, those texts that you've actually used. You need to be able to identify uh, the major works in the area, the primary texts and even secondary texts and even major articles. Uh, I don't want you to spend all your time doing the bibliography. But I would like you to spend a little bit of time. I mean, I, I find myself always reading papers where I can just see the student as he's writing. He sort of looks on his shelf and says, oh, yeah, that'll be good. Or yeah, just whatever he's got on his shelf. Well, that's not the way to get into a paper. The way to get into a paper is you go to the library. That's the first place you go. You go to the library. And you go to index, to index one religious periodicals. And you look up some of the key articles. Uh, you go to some of the dictionaries. One of the very best dictionaries is the New Catholic Encyclopedia. Uh, and they will list articles for you in those encyclopedia journal entries. Uh, find some of the key articles. Make sure you read those. Find some of the major textbooks about Schleiermacher. Now, I know this is you know, it's not meant to be comprehensive, but some of the key works on each of these persons would be nice, as well as to put an asterisk by those that you have used extensively as you do your paper. Okay? I also like and think it is good if you have your outline in your paper. That means you will have headings and subheadings and perhaps sub subheadings in the paper so when i get a paper it'll have the title introduction and it may then say if i did it on wesley and whitfield i'd have the section uh, if it's on Wesley Whitfield on predestination, I might do it like this. An introduction, talking about the issues, maybe talking about what predestination is as a theological doctrine. I'd go to, to Burkhoff and look carefully at his discussion of predestination, make sure I was familiar with the technical terms, the distinctions of that particular doctrine. I might articulate that very briefly in the introduction to orient my reader to the issue 
that we're going to be talking about in the paper. Maybe read another article or two on predestination. Then I would look at Wesley's doctrine. Uh, I might then begin to give a bit of a history of the controversy between the two. That, in fact, that might even be an introduction. Or maybe even after introduction, I might have a section that said history of the controversy. And then detail the controversy in historical terms. Then have another section then on Wesley on predestination, having read the key works, uh, being very familiar with Then look at uh, Whitfield on the question and the, what his theological viewpoint was. And then in conclusion, I would sum up what I've done and render some sort of judgment as to uh, what I think about the controversy. I think it was uh, a situation where uh, Wesley was mean and cruel and had bad theology. Uh, was it more than that? Was it, was it only that? Whatever. Sum things up in that context. <coughs> Does that give you an idea of what I'm looking for? And on, So you'll have these headings in the paper. Uh, for those of you who don't know this, I think that helps you write a better paper. If you have right in front of your eyes the heading, you tend to be more focused as you write that next paragraph. Uh, and if you force yourself to, to put together an outline, you tend to be more organized. You know where you've been and where you're going in the paper. Amazing. I think that can help people. I, I trust that it will. Are you with me? Okay. Paper is a pretty significant portion of your grade. So it's the kind of thing you want to invest uh, a considerable amount of time preparing. I know this will come as, as a uh, disappointment to you all, but it's always better to write your papers at least twice. Sorry, but a second draft is almost 100% of the time better than the first draft. So, and I know time is, 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 uh, is of the essence for seminary students, but if you can manage it, you tend to write better papers if you if you have a second. I always have to say this. I had a bad experience this summer. Uh, I had a student who cheated in Oxford. It is so. And that student... Uh, is no longer with us. No. <laughs> um, that <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, cheating is a no go. If and you know, I feel funny having to say that to a seminary group, but. It's happened before, and I'll, so I feel a need to really stress this, that if I find plagiarism uh, or cheating on an exam or anything like that, uh, I will fail you, and, and, I'll, and I'll even do more than I'll come after you, and, and, I, and I really will, will press you not to ever do that again. Uh, that's, that's a real bad thing. 
uh, and I, I had a student this summer, and it just broke my heart because this student was a very bright student, has, has a great future, and, and wants to do academics, wants to get a PhD. And uh, it was amazing. She just ran out of time, and so she plagiarized. And I had just read the book from which she plagiarized, and she plagiarized word for word. And she got an F. So uh, it has happened, and if you think you can pull the wool over my eyes, you may get away with it, but you may not. Uh, so just just a word of warning about those sorts of things. Uh, I, I, I don't want to have to deal with that. It's very awkward and very uncomfortable for me, but it's a lot worse for you. So please, take that to heart. Uh, just some general comments before we, I think, church history is more than just an academic exercise. Uh, I think it has to do with edification. In fact, I think church history particularly, and human history in general, is really a subcategory of the doctrine of providence. Uh, and that means it's really a part of theology proper. Uh, it's really the story of how God works through primary and, and, and secondary causes throughout human history. And I think that we do well, not only in the lives of other people in the past, but in our own lives. And I, I say this, and this is one of the hardest things I think as a Christian, is when a difficulty occurs in our own lives, uh, one of the first things I do when I when, when something when the Lord puts a trial in my way, one of the first things I do is is I acknowledge that this is of God, and then I learn, then I figure out some way to deal with it, whether it's just by crying on my pillow or uh, <coughs> prayer or whatever. Uh, this is God's world, and this is God's history. And it's God doing His will. Whether we understand why God did this at this time, this puts us in some very awkward circumstances. I mean, when you talk about history the way I talk about history, it creates all kinds of moral dilemmas for us. Rwanda. Is that under the doctrine of the providence of God? Or no? It has to be. That creates difficulty. It's hard to deal with that kind of thing. Uh, but I think, nevertheless, when those kinds of circumstances, and we can talk about in, in church history a million circumstances. I mean, those of you who are in History 1, we talked about the martyrs in the early church and the terrible, terrible deaths uh, they suffered. And if history is as I say it is, if it's really a subcategory of the doctrine of the providence of God, we have to say God has orchestrated this somehow. I don't understand it. I don't even particularly like it. But I have to say this is God's story. And He is unfolding it and doing and orchestrating things according to His sovereign purposes whether I understand why he does it this way or not. 
I think that looking at that as an historian in church history has some very direct benefits in terms of our own spiritual growth and lives. When we face trials and difficulties and we say, God, the first thing you need to do is say, God, because we know that it comes from Him. Somehow, it forces us to come to terms with the question of trust. Can I trust God even though I may not understand why God is bringing this trial to me now? And I think the person who can work through that kind of dilemma is a person who will grow deeper in their relationship to the Lord. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's Christianity, it's hardcore Christianity. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road. Uh, and, and again, I think it's all for a good purpose. Somehow, perhaps in eternity, I'm not sure we'll know the full, have the full explanation, but perhaps we'll have a better understanding of how God used that difficult event, a tragic event perhaps, to bring about glory for Himself, to somehow edify us and make us grow. So, church history for me has a lot of, of positive benefits, spiritual benefits, things I can learn. When I look at how God has dealt with the lives of other men and women, I see par parallels in my own life at certain points. And to see how they handled it, to see if they, did, if they handled it well or handled it poorly can be an encouragement to me. So, uh, one of the things that informs my view of church history is to see church history as really part of theology proper. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.